As we come together, I was reading an article this week that was insightful to me about our gatherings, that is the people of God, the church that gathers, about what it is we're exactly doing corporately and individually, one with another in these moments. This author in the article spoke, I thought, very insightfully as he said that church gathering, a church institution is a resalinization effort. That those of the people of God come together where the salt has somewhat throughout the course of challenge, trial, tribulation, and distress lost its layer of saltiness. And so it comes back together to once again be resalinized together, filled out to be made salty by the word of the Lord, and then sent out and spread abroad into our respective land. I appreciated the thought of the church gathering this morning as I read that article that we are together in these few moments, worship and song, giving, fellowship, and now attention to the word. I attempt with you as you with me through active listening to re-salinize ourselves around the word of God that we would be once again made salty, ready to be salt and light as we then leave this place. If I could contribute to that effort with you from Revelation 20 is my attempt. I begin there by remembering uh, with you from last week, it's not a total review, but if you could recall, the basic work we have done to this point is that last week we identified those who came, well, no, they didn't come to life yet, that's this week. We identified those who were uh, seated upon the thrones. There are thrones there in this The heavenly vision of the authority of Christ in heaven. We have the authority of Christ on the earth and in heaven, Matthew 28. And this first portion of verse 4 of Revelation 20, we see thrones. And in this throne room vision, there are those who are granted authority to rule and to judge. I asked you last week as we thought, man, this is a really difficult picture. Those who are there in this heavenly throne room... Who is it that have been given power to judge or exercise rule or authority? Who are these individuals? And we found out quite simply, it is the church. Those who die in faith. How did we identify them so easily and and do away with the complexities of the vision and kind of get to the more concrete, simple layer? Well, we went right within the book itself and we found this promise given to who? The church in the seven letters written to the seven churches is given in chapter 2. They will die. And they will be raised. They will have a crown of life given to them. And then we watch in chapter 3 and at the end of chapter 2 in the beginning of chapter 3 there. To the church is given the promise that he who overcomes. Not by great triumph of physical Abilities. He who overcomes, quite frankly, by dying, is he who will rule with me, and I will seat him on my throne as I have myself been seated upon my father's throne. And he, the one who overcomes, who did he write that to? To the church. To a select few. Again, remember, I threw that thought. Each one of us has had that fear where we've tried out for an athletic sport of some kind and the coach 
watched our terrible plays, and then we feared the next day when we went to school to look upon that sheet posted next to the gymnasium door. Are we on the team? We're nerve-wrackingly looking at it to see if I made it or I didn't, and then we don't want to get that kind of application here to this text of those who will overcome. Well, am I on the sheet? Is it just out of the mass of the church a select few who will make it on the team to rule, who will be seated upon thrones to rule and be high priests of Christ in the intermediate state? Is that a select few? No, it isn't. It is given to all who die in faith. To every individual who by loving Christ Love not their own life, even unto death. It is they who are seated, ruling with Christ. When is it payable? When is the promise to be fulfilled? Twofold, right? Just like all of the New Testament. We've been talking about that in the book of Philippians in our time together in the evenings. That the New Testament has said always this language of already and not yet. And it's always talking in the same terms. Already, not yet. Already, not yet. So is it here? Yes, it is. Great. Well, it's not yet. Meaning it's partially fulfilled now. And it is consummate when the Lord returns. So that indeed, those who die in the Lord today, loved ones who you have, who have already died in the Lord, experience now the partial fulfillment of the consummate promise that when he returns, they will experience in its fullness at the bodily resurrection. But they experience it partially right now. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That is what we're seeing in verse 4 of who these individuals are. John now, in verses 5 and 6, as we develop it this morning, is going to continue to fill out the description of these who have been seated upon these thrones and have been given the ability to judge and to rule. He continues to develop who they are more explicitly for us this morning. That is my hope for you and myself, that we'll walk through this passage and be able to identify those who have died in the Lord more clearly and continue to fill out the identity of all who die in faith and what awaits them, each one of us, if we die before the Lord returns. Look at this picture here of this heavenly vision as I look with you in verse 4. In our first step of identifying further who these are of the church. What is John seeing? Verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And again we've already discussed that. Now here we continue to identify them furthermore. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. And the word of God. The first step forward in identifying the further identity of these who are gathered unto Christ during this millennial age. John sees souls of those who had been beheaded. He is actually looking at, in a heavenly vision, those who have died physically 
and are alive spiritually. They are alive. They are disembodied souls. He is looking upon them. He sees those who in time were physically beheaded. And yet they raised to new life in the presence of the Lord. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. He has seen disembodied souls present with the Lord. Now, did they need to be specifically beheaded? I would submit to you, no. They indeed did, though. The highlight here, the accent is placed upon those who have been beheaded or those who, more broadly speaking, have died a martyr's death. They have died specifically in a manner, physically, as those who had been beheaded. He is gazing upon martyrs. Now, does that, out of that large group of martyrs physically upon the earth, involve some beheading? Absolutely. So it could be what he's accentuating is physically beheaded individuals. I have no problem with that. And I trust neither do you because it says so. Yet indeed, is it only martyred by beheading? I would push it further to suggest no. But they have been martyred. Now, there's a continuing group here. It's not just the martyrs. Those physically giving their life for the cause of Christ in time who John is looking upon in glory. As he's looking right now in this heavenly vision. Look at the vision expands beyond just those who have been beheaded. Look at how he further describes even more who are present. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. So you see here, here is a large group of individuals who, what would we put those images together to say one word? These people lived lives of faithfulness. They did not worship the beast. They did not worship its image. They did not receive its mark. They didn't join in the world system. They lived lives of faithfulness. And these are the descriptions of those who live faithfully. They don't worship the beast. They don't receive his mark upon their hands or their foreheads. Earlier in the book of Revelation where this image is being drawn from, we talked about it already. Some of you weren't able to be with us. I would submit to you that receiving the mark of the beast is much more a mark of your life that is lived both in thought and in deed. So it is to receive or to bear out the mark of the beast in mind, forehead, or in hand, in behavior, is to be anti-Christ. Opposite of living faithful unto Christ. So there is a broad group that John is gazing upon right now, alive in Christ. And that is all who overcome by living faithfully unto the Lord. Whether they die physically unto martyrdom, or they die living faithfully day in and day out. 
both live with the Lord when they die. I want to draw your attention to something that I think is very important for us to look at, both collectively as Christians and individually as Christians. Look at the content that brought the physical martyrdom about in many of the individuals. Look at the content. The souls of those who had been beheaded. Do you see there the cause of their being physically martyred? The testimony of Jesus and the Word of God. What I want to draw your attention to about the contents that brought their physical martyrdom is to challenge you and to challenge me with the thought of culture's current climate and the proclamation of the gospel. How is it that in culture today we could, in many ways, join in the masses and be applauded with a bracelet. And I have nothing against the bracelet. I have a Redeemer bracelet on today. So I have nothing against bracelets. And I have nothing against the slogan in its own way of what would Jesus do? Great. Let's talk ethics. L- let's talk life lived before the face of the Lord and being faithful and examining in our own lives how we ought to live as the Lord has so strengthened us and indwelt us. Yet I would challenge each of us a step further. Surprise, surprise. That won't bring physical martyrdom. Right? In our current climate, moral, it's kind of termed moralistic, therapeutic deism is the God of the United States. Right? So as long as we're, we're moral, th- this makes sense, we make moral application and we're relatively insightful about ethics. We don't steal the pens and pencils from work. Good, great, great, great. That's good testimony, yes. We won't be confronted over that. So as long as we're moral and we think, what, what is it? But then we find out that morality is relative, isn't it? I mean, you can't impose morality on another. But we all applaud the idea of morality. That won't get you beheaded. Normal, as long as it's therapeutic and it's encouraging, insightful. Somehow concrete and helpful to somebody else. I like that guy. He's nice. Whenever he's around, I feel good about him. I feel good about me when I'm around him. Great His messages are particularly insightful. Great. We don't come to be the church to receive psychotherapy, but to be transformed and conformed by the contents of the word. There's a difference there. So so if we look at morality and, and therapy and insight, and then we look at deism, the idea that there is a higher power, Can you think of one cultural commentator who will slap you down or marginalize your walk with the Lord because of moralism or therapeutic insight 
or the idea that you would even appeal to a deity? I don't think so. Dr. Laura, two thumbs up on those ideas. Oprah, two thumbs up on those ideas. One who I somewhat follow his talking points. The cultural, political commentator, maybe many of you despise him. I just share. Please don't judge. Bill O'Reilly, for me, he can be quite cantankerous, but I follow. So it is that he says this week, he said, you know something that would really help all of us out, each one of us in the United States, that would help us. This is his tip of the day to you and to me to America at large, if we would spend one hour, one hour a week, on something theological. Something theological. One hour. That's all he's asking of each of us, to transform the world, is just do something theological in nature. One hour a week. You're now beginning to ask me, what is the point? The point is, do you see the difference between the idea of moral therapeutic deism and the distinctions of the gospel? One brings rebuke, marginalization, and trial. The other is broadly accepted and even appreciated. When you move from what would Jesus do into declaring definitively what Jesus has done. Do you see the great change? One is built on the testimony of Jesus, the explicit truth of the gospel. Not moral, therapeutic, make you feel better, the idea of a deism. It is explicitly the gospel of Jesus. And do you see these individuals in time? throughout church history have been beheaded for what moral therapy appealing to the idea of a god they have been beheaded for the testimony explicitly of jesus and the word of god and its truthfulness when you begin to speak in terms of what jesus has definitively done as though it's true challenges await This is the call to the church as we gaze upon those of martyrdom, as we gaze upon those who had not worshipped the beast or its image or received it in their hands or on their foreheads. They died faithfully, speaking explicitly of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the word of God. Not vague notions about being a people of faith, but a faith that has an object in the Lord Jesus Christ who has been raised. This is different. This will bring conflict with culture, even with Bill O'Reilly. That was a joke. Because you're moving, not so subtly, from the idea of something theological to the idea of Jesus, the Son of God, who has died and been raised and calls upon all men everywhere to repent, even you. This is different. This brings conflict. But this is the labor of the church.
All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. So go with the contents of my commandments, teaching all that I have taught you. Don't back away because you love the glory that comes from man more than you love the glory that comes from God. So it is that the church becomes watered down in its theology. Precision doesn't matter anymore. And doctrine is an elastic term that we can kind of pick and choose. But the explicit call right there in the text to fortify your soul, there is a call upon your life, Christian, upon my life. Surely I have a separate calling perhaps than you as a herald of the gospel in the office of elder, but that doesn't make me non-Christian. A separate category that isn't also to fall upon the weight of going in the name of the Lord and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Nor are you somehow in your own capacity of work separate at that job than being a Christian. Where your faith feasts upon the Lord Jesus and it is known to others. That Jesus is the Son of God who died and has been raised just as he said in the Bible. This for the early church brought martyrdom and it continues to bring martyrdom beyond the United States in the 21st century. But then maybe we get to the point where we say, okay, so how do we get these two groups? We, we look upon those who are narrowly martyred for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, explicitly speaking his gospel. And then those who believe in the Bible and live it out, not worshiping the powers that be, but continuing in a life of faithfulness. Those of narrow martyrdom and those broadly speaking of all who die by faith in Christ. How do we live in America? looking at the book of Revelation primarily, and still somehow feel like we can call ourselves properly Christian when we consider our brothers and sisters in the very difficult places of the world. Right? There's two people in this text, those who are living by faith, faithfully each day, and then there are those we are well aware of that are suffering martyrdom right now. How do we coexist? Right? Do you ever feel the weight of that? Like, I'm a believer. Look at me. I'm here worshiping in the safe confines. Oh, that's embarrassing. There's other people giving their lives for that. Maybe I ought to go do the same. And we have that kind of struggle within the one church. What is this providence that's been given us, and how do we appreciate it and not feel guilty over it? And yet, how do we rightly receive it so that we pray and that we labor for those who are suffering? I would submit to you, we've seen a little picture of this at the end of John's Gospel. Maybe you remember Jesus is resurrected on the beach. You remember at the end of John's gospel, our Lord was alive, walking. And he's walking across this beach, and and Peter needed to be restored. You remember Peter denied him three times. And and the Lord was raised. And Peter was a little bit sheepish sheepish about this encounter. Because again, the last time I saw him, he was being let out, and I denied him, just like he told me, three times. 
and I went out and I wept bitterly. And now there he is. And we've all had those weird relationships where there's like this weirdness that needs to be restored. And you don't know your approach. Don't know how it's going to go. And certainly you as the guilty party feel all the weight of the situation. And then in this dynamic of the Lord, do you remember that conversation clearly? He restores Peter. You remember? Comforts Peter. And they begin to walk on the beach. And as they're walking, the Lord begins to talk to Peter. Do you remember he says to Peter, Peter, when you're older, when when you were younger, you used to go wherever you wanted to go and do the things that you wanted to do. But Peter, when you're older, people are going to take you where you don't want to go. And we're all like, "What, what exactly does that mean? And John fills in for us right there. He was speaking to Peter about the manner of his death. They will bind your hands, Peter. Tie you up. Peter knew what was the discussion. He was keen on what the Lord was indicating here. Peter is about to follow the way of martyrdom. History would prove out as early as origin that indeed Peter was crucified. Origen says that Peter was crucified upside down because he felt he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. Peter went the way of the beheaded. And as he knew this call and the cost of his discipleship, Peter did what you and I do every single day. John was trailing behind. Do you remember? And Peter, looking at the Lord, says, what about him? Right? Just like us. In the kindness of providence and in the trials of our providence, we tend to look at others around us, don't we? And begin to wonder, what about them? Look at the kindness. Look at the martyrdom. And the Lord instructs each of us. And Peter in that moment, do you remember what he said? Peter, Christian, if he stays alive until I come again, what is that to you? Peter, you follow me. You. Not by looking at John. Not by gauging at other believers and their providence. Feeling guilty or triumphant. It's not yours to judge. Peter, you What I just told you, you look at me. You follow me. And in that word, we watch two apostles go in, spreading the word, writing the gospel, and building the church, both respectively with different ends. By one shared Lord. 
both respectively, regardless of their challenges, had not the call to compete or to experience pride? I don't have to die like you. What is that to you? To consider what I'm doing in you in the light of another. You follow me. And this is the picture of Revelation 20, of how that plays out. There is one Lord who all the saints rise when they die in his presence. Not just the first class who really lived their life for the Lord. They really gave everything. They died for him. Indeed, they did. And as history would say, the what foundation of the church is built upon the blood of the martyrs? They contribute to the growth and maturity of the church. And so too do those who die without a grand beheading, but love their wives faithfully before the face of God and said no to pornography. You'll be raised too. So too did those fathers who raised their children, teaching them the word of the Lord, leading their families faithfully, saying no to the beast and his image, not bearing out one manner of life away from the home, away from the family, with the mark of the beast on his head and hands. And then when he comes home, pretending to be that who followed Christ and serves him. Both have one calling. Every Christian has one calling, and that is to follow the Lord. Not by gauging it on the believers to the left and to the right, but gauging it before the Lord, prayerfully and faithfully following Him. In John twelve twenty six, the Lord says this, If anyone wants to serve me, anyone, he must follow me. He must follow me. And this is the call of Revelation 20 as we look upon those who have been martyred and those who simply died in faith. It is that common denominator. They were both faithful, respectively, to the call of the Lord upon their lives. Look at the next passage there of the explicitly speaking of the gospel of the Lord, the word of the testimony of the word of God, and those who live lives of faithfulness. Look at how they are then described. They, at the very end of verse 4, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So all who died in faith came to life. I'm suggesting to you, as John is looking upon the souls that have been beheaded, the souls who live lives of faithfulness before the Lord in time, are here described as being resurrected in terms of an entrance into the presence of the Lord. What does he mean by resurrected? He means that they came to life in this thousand year period in the presence of the Lord. This is what is commonly referred to as the intermediate state. It is intermediate. We're not in the consummate glory yet, are we? This certainly isn't the new heaven and the new earth. 
we are yet awaiting the deliverance of the new heaven and the new earth, the consummate glory of the Lord. So there is right now an intermediate state. There is not soul sleep where the soul goes away and lacks self-awareness, that it simply slumbers and sleeps until the next great event in human history where the Lord returns. No, Paul would say, again from last week, to be apart from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. And he knows somehow in a self-reflexive way that it's far better. He knows that the soul of our loved ones and of ourselves that we would die in faith is that we will be in the moment of death raised in the presence of Christ. We will be in that intermediate state in the presence of the Lord awaiting the deliverance of the consummate promise, a new heaven and a new earth with a bodily resurrection where our bodies will be transformed into a glorious image that will endure for eternity. So what happens if you die today? Do you go to heaven? Yes, in a manner of speaking. Certainly, that is heaven, to be absent from the body and to be present from, with the Lord. It is more narrowly referred to as an intermediate state. Don't worry if you're taking a deep breath at this point saying, is he saying something unorthodox here and we just don't know? No. Intermediate state, many of you know, I'm sure, is what everyone says, regardless of how you interpret Revelation 20. There is an intermediate state right now as we await the final state of all things in God. So right now, believers who have died in the Lord have been raised in his presence and they are experiencing his rule. So I affirm that the thousand year period is right now. And it is experienced in the earth in the binding of Satan and it is experienced in the intermediate state as all who die in the Lord are raised to experience life in his name. They find out, just like he promised, he's true and faithful, that not a hair of their head has perished. But they have a crown of life and they have been raised in his presence and experience his kingdom right now. They are not dark souls wandering about the barren places. They are in the presence of their king. And they got there by faithfulness. Whether all the way unto death, as some of the world will indefinitely experience. Or also loving not their lives even unto their death. By living faithfully before him. By faith every day. All with their eyes on Christ have died in faith. So too will be raised in his presence have every longing fulfilled, every discouragement put aside, they will move into a deathless world immediately. And we think of ourselves, so why is he describing it this way? Why is he describing this first resurrection? What is he doing here with all this language? Of, I see disembodied souls here. Everyone who lived faithfully in time have now been joined to the Lord. And I see them. And they have come to life in his name. Oh, beloved, think why he's writing this. Think about why. You've been with me for a year and a half almost. Think about why. Because this church is to experience physical martyrdom. Many, if not most, of this first century letter. We're to go the way of dying physically 
by the hand of the beast. So it is that he would write to encourage and console the church of Christ. Every one of you. What if I said to you right now, when all of us leave this room, we're all going to be beheaded in the street. The announcement's been made. No, I'm, I'm dead serious. If I was to make that announcement right now, what do you need to hear from me? If the announcement's been made, they're coming. There's a van, it's coming, the city's locked down, and it's coming. And the Grim Reapers, there's ten of them. And they're all coming, and they're setting up the altar out there to lay our heads down and off with them. We can't go anywhere. We're marching to our death. What do you need to hear from me? What do we need to look at one another in the eyes and hear and say one to another? You will be raised. You will be raised. A hair of your head will not perish. So he writes to the church of the first century to encourage and console them. You very well may die by the hand of the beast physically. But you will be raised spiritually in the presence of Christ. The second death that is to come at the consummation of the age, the second death where all the bodies even our heads that have rolled away down the street somewhere are gathered. That our bodies will be raised. And then when all people are raised in one bodily physical resurrection, everybody is raised. Either to dispense out a second death. Or a continuation of eternal life. I would say to you, brothers and sisters, remember, you will raise today in the presence of Christ. And when your body is raised to be with you, that second death will have no hold on you. But you will continue to be priests in the presence of Christ and God forever. Think as you read that, that John the Apostle says that to you. You receive the call of the Lord upon your life to love not your life, even unto death. So be encouraged, John says. You will be raised in the first resurrection. Have you ever thought about some of these things as I share with you? What if Pastor Adam's right? What if? What if out of all of these images, he's got one of them right? Okay, percentages would be bad in my favor, granted. But what if the one that I'm right about is tribulation? 
and distress. What if I am right? Not me, i just talking with you. The text does indeed teach. What if it does teach that we will go through and are presently in, as the church universal, a great tribulation and distress? Some of you have thought that probably. Because usually when we talk about eschatology or end times, there's only two things we need to make sure of. One, we don't go through the great tribulation, and if that's secured, okay, good, keep going. But when that kind of goes by the wayside, it's like, time out. I'm just going to hold on to that, but I'll keep going with you wherever else you're going. But I'm holding on to that one. That one's key. And then also the thought of a physical earthly millennium in the world. What if it is indeed that we will, and perhaps you will, within your own life, if the Lord does not return, you will go the way of martyrdom. John Flavel, I would encourage you, we have this book, it's not an advertisement or a sale, but this is an excellent book on conquering fear. I want to share with you what his insights are about how we all would think about what we're just now reading in Revelation 20. How is it that he would speak? He says this, and and I identify with this, I imagine you would as well. He says this about fear. When you hear of such things, are you afraid of what you will do? You look at your brothers and sisters right now. You look at perhaps the changing of the tide, even within your own generation. Are you afraid, in those images, of what you will do? He says, it is common for God's people to propose difficult cases and scenarios and raise unto themselves startling questions. These may serve to rouse you out of a false sense of security. They may serve to force you to try your own condition and estate before the Lord. And it may prepare you to think on these things for the worst case scenario. It may prepare you. What if he's right? What will I do if this actually occurred? He continues, however, the saint must tread carefully. Satan usually uses these startling questions To a contrary end. He uses the saint's own question. To deject. Frighten. And discourage them. Have you thought of that ever? In light of trial and tribulation? I don't know how they do it. I know I can't. Oh that's terrible of me. Wait a minute. Would I be faithful? He gives a story of a saint here. He says, quote, the saint begins to ask, quote, if fiery trials were to come to my life, if my life and liberty were actually threatened, I fear I would not have enough strength to continue in the way of religion, I must admit. I would deny the words of our Lord. I know 
I would shipwreck my faith and the good conscience at the very first gust of physical temptation. Oh, that's true. I can hear, I can pray, and I can profess. But in my heart, I doubt I can burn, bleed, or lie in a dungeon for Christ. You ever thought that? If I can barely run with the footmen in the land of peace, how can I possibly contend with the horses at the swellings of Jordan? This is a saint's introspective look at Revelation 20. Would I be faithful? I can pray and profess and hear, but I don't think I have it in me to bleed and to burn. He continues, but these fears we must tell the saints, they are groundless. They are either forged in your own heart or they are secretly introduced by Satan. God has abundantly secured you against such fears by that most sweet, supporting, and blessed promise He has given your soul. I will put my fear into their hearts. Here we go. Did you see the, the, the truck showed up? Here we go. I can't do it. I know I can't. I can't bleed, burn, or be thrown in a cage. I, I'm going to deny it. At the first gust, when that truck shows up and the first blade is pulled out, I'm out. But he is secured. That isn't true of you. You're a child of the Lord. It's not true of you. He has secured your faithfulness by that sweet and precious promise. I will put my fear in their heart. He continues that they shall never depart from me. That is a different kind of fear from the one that startles you. From the one that terrifies you. God promises to put it within you. Not to shake and undermine your assurance by groundless questioning. But to guard and maintain your surety. This fear, the fear of the Lord is able to vanquish and expel all competing fears. He will not lose one of them. Nor will trial or distress separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You will die in faithfulness. Continue in the way of faithfulness. And you will too be raised in the first resurrection. Father, I pray that you will strengthen the believers this morning, the 
church that has come together to be together around your word to think about heaven. I pray that they would trust that blessed indeed are all who die in the Lord. That as they think about their life, not so cinematically exciting as a martyr, they would not be driven to think of guilt or driven away from grace and the life that you have provided for them, but they too would find it no small significant matter to be faithful unto the Lord in all manner of living. And that they would not look to the left or the right, but they would look to you and follow you, no matter the providence you have given them. That we would love not our lives in all manner of living, even if that bring about a physical dying. But that your fear would accompany us to hate sin, love righteousness, and so be found faithful before our Lord. Love you for your word. Love you for your work. Love you for your spirit that you've given us. Resalinize the saints. Strengthen them according to this word. Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen.